call to worship is from Psalm 80, as we continue in the sermon series through God's garden, God calls us to worship. Hear us, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might, come and save us. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. O Lord God Almighty, how long will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us a source of contention to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Restore us, O God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its boughs to the sea. It shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and the creatures of the field feed on it. Return us, O God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down, it is burned with fire. At your rebuke your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Amen. Let's sing hymn number 208. Our scripture reading comes from two places this morning as we continue in this series through God's garden. Today will be the sacrifice and the garden. And we'll begin our scripture reading in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. And after we read the end of Genesis chapter 3, we'll turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Isaiah chapter 53, but actually I want to start reading in Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and familiar with suffering. 
Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Prescott, can you come lead us in prayer? We come now in our series on God's garden to the record of the central event of our Christian faith, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I sense a difficulty here because Christians are so familiar or think they are so familiar with the cross and the resurrection that I fear we often miss the full biblical meaning and glory of the cross. Last time we saw how the Gospels tell of Jesus Christ, how the story of the Gospels that tell of Jesus Christ only makes sense in terms of the Old Testament. The Gospels open up with all these ideas of fulfilled promises that Jesus Christ was the Messiah of Israel and He was was going to bring about the the saving of His people, Israel. So if the, the coming of Messiah only makes sense in terms of the entire Old Testament story, The same is true about the sacrifice in the garden. The sacrifice in the garden only makes sense in terms of the full story of Scripture beginning in Genesis and running all the way through the Old Testament. How would Messiah bring God's salvation into the world? He would do it through sacrifice. Do we really understand the rich biblical history behind John's proclamation, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. I really don't think modern Christians understand the full story of what that means. Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Consider that movie that came out a few years ago, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie. 
Christians loved that movie, and not entirely for bad reasons, but if you remember that movie, it was one of the most profitable movies of all time. People went back and back to see it over and over again, and this movie went not only in America, it went around the world. They were able to change the subtitles for for any particular country, but that was an incredibly successful movie in dollar terms. Millions of people went and saw that movie. A lot of them saw it more than once and kept watching it over and over again. I saw reports of people weeping at the end of that movie. Now, you would think that something as big as that movie that was so powerful in at the moment back then would create a change in the world. And I have no doubt that there, there were some people who really were first in, influenced and confronted with Christianity through that movie. But by and large, that movie is now ancient history. And people watched the movie and then they got on with their lives. There's not been this huge change that you would imagine from some kind of a movie effect like The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie. Why is that? Well, I think a big part of the reason why is because the way we look at the cross and the resurrection is very emotional, very sentimental. And in a sentimental day where everything is cute and beautiful, it has this idea of tugging at the heartstrings to watch some kind of a reenactment of what took place with the crucifixion. And what happens is emotions are inherently fickle. They change from time to time. We don't feel the same about everything in life at all the same time. We get on this roller coaster ride of sentimentalism. And so when the cross of Christ and the resurrection is presented in an emotional state, primarily designed to create an emotional effect like what you had with the uh, Passion of the Christ, what happens? Really, nothing happens long term. Now, I'm not here to, to badmouth emotion or sentiment by themselves because I think they are very powerful things. I, I think God created us to have them. But there is something that needs to be deeper that we view the cross of Christ through. And I think that's what the Old Testament really will bring out. It's not so much that it's an either-or choice between emotion and sentiment and what we see with the crucifixion, but it's more or less the context of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the resurrection and what it means in covenant history that creates that deep root for us to really appreciate what the sacrifice was all about. So, what I'm going to do with this, with this sermon today is go back into the background and look at the, something substantial, something deep. Because I, I really believe that because Christians are so familiar with the cross, they think they understand the cross, they think they understand the resurrection, and really what they have is a shallow shell of the cross. They understand a shell or sort of a, a purely historical event that tugs on the heartstrings that supposedly is you know, the essence of our Christian faith. And I don't believe that's the case. I don't believe that the way Christians view the cross today is the essence of our Christian faith. Our Christian faith is much deeper than that, and as we will see, the resurrection and the crucifixion of Christ both go much deeper. When Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John recorded the story of the crucifixion, they knew how deep these events were because they knew the Old Testament. And that's the big difference. That's the big challenge that we have in our day. There was a sacrifice in the original garden. The history of Israel was formed out of sacrifice. The Passover taught the people about Jesus Christ in the days of the Exodus. Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. That's the background behind what John was saying. 
So let's look at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in terms of the garden of God, the, the full story of Scripture. And I believe there is much more to the story than most Christians today can imagine. And where I want to start is in Luke chapter 22. I'll start in Luke, but we'll do most of this from John's account. So Luke chapter 22, I will be uh, emphasizing the garden themes and the, the, uh, the elements that have been introduced to us through the story about God's garden. But Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 39. This is before he was betrayed. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling on the ground. And a lot of people read this particular text as if the emphasis is on the blood, as if it was literally blood falling on the ground. But the text doesn't say that. What Luke says is that it's literally sweat that fell to the ground like great drops of blood. Now, as Jesus looked forward to what was set before him, and I believe through the prophets, he understood exactly what was set before him through prophecies like Isaiah 53. The travail of his soul caused his body to be drenched in sweat. And here we have one of those connections back to Genesis chapter 3. Because what you have here is Jesus starting to experience God's original curse. How does God's original curse upon Adam come to us? He was to toil in the land to bear food by the sweat of his brow. And so this is an actually a, a, a connection back to the original curse upon Adam. And so Jesus begins to bear this curse on Adam as he looked forward in anguish to what was set before him. As Paul says, he became a curse for us. And when Paul says he became a curse for us, we have to think about the original curse back in Genesis chapter 3 as the context of that statement. But what about thorns? Remember thorns were the other element in the garden? The curse on Adam it was that the land would bear thorns as well? Well, now we can turn to John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the face. So here during the crucifixion we have a second element of that curse appearing. The crown of thorns. Now, what I want to do is read this story from John chapter 19. It'll be a fairly lengthy read, but I'm going to stop at various points and try to connect what's going on in the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection to Israel's history and also particularly to the garden, which we, are, we will end in, ironically, with the resurrection. The resurrection takes place in a garden. So keep those things in mind and let's begin to read in verse 4 or continue in verse 4. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Now, Pilate had already flogged him. 
And now he claims that he finds no basis for a charge against him. And so what we see here is both Gentiles and the Jews together in an unjust sin against the Messiah. It's not as if it was merely the Jews and it's not as if it was merely the Gentiles that were bringing about this crucifixion. They are both involved in violation of God's holy law of justice. The Jews insisted we have a law and according to that law he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. And Pilate understood this language. The Son of God was actually what Rome and the Caesars claimed for themselves. They claimed to be the divine Son of God walking on the earth. And so you notice how Pilate recognized exactly what what the people were saying and he responded in verse 8. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Who was it that handed him over to Pilate? It was the chief priest representing the people. And if you think about this in terms of, it's interesting here, the idea here is is there is greater guilt for those who have greater knowledge. The people, the chief priests, the Jews, had the law and the prophets. They were to understand the coming of Messiah and they rejected those law, the law and the prophets in their rejection of the Messiah. So they had greater sin than Pilate. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as a stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. So we have this reference to the Jewish celebration of Passover. Isn't that amazing that God ordained the timing of the sacrifice of the Passover lamb at the time in which the Jews were preparing for Passover? And so there is some debate about this, but it is very likely the case that while they were going through this trial and putting Christ on the cross, there were hundreds of thousands of sheep across the land of Israel, actually across the Roman Empire, but particularly in the land of Israel, they were being killed at the very same time that the Messiah was put up on the cross. It's a remarkable irony and amazing providential fact of history that Jesus Christ was crucified on the day of preparation for the Passover feast. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Now remember, these, these are God's people who have been taught that God is king over all the earth. And their leader says, we have no king but Caesar. This is apostasy. This is breaking of the covenant. This is a high-handed violation of God's covenant standards. And if you read parallel texts, you read that the people, that the chief priests and the teachers of the law incited the people to say, His blood be upon us and upon our children to alleviate Pilate's concern here. In other words, we'll bear the guilt. That is how intent they were on destroying the Messiah, this teacher. And of course, if you know what happened to the Jews 
and to Jerusalem and Judea in the first century, you know that that came true. His blood really was upon them and their children. God is a just God. Finally, of course, once they make this claim, finally Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Now you have to remember, to get the most out of this, that John comes from a priest's family. John knows Israel's history. John knows the symbolism. He knows it all. And so he writes this down specifically to understand this is the place of the skull, Golgotha. Now that should have a connection to you back to Genesis chapter 3 because remember God promised the woman that her seed was going to be at war against the serpent seed and that the serpent seed would strike the seed of the woman and the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, the skull. And so what we've got going on here, if you can imagine this image of what's taking place, you have Christ being placed on a cross, being lifted up over Golgotha, the place of the skull. Just imagine seeing that and thrust into the ground on top as a stake piercing the top of the mountain. You can see a lot of other history in this too because in Israel's history you had Jael who took the tent peg and drove it into Sisera's skull into the ground and killed the king of the armies that oppressed Israel. Lots of symbolism here. Lots of things that go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and the garden. And so you have Jesus himself placed on the cross and thrown into place with his cross piercing the skull, the place called, called Golgotha. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now, if you think about the history of Israel, and somebody says, King of the Jews, who should you think about? Who was the great king of the Jews? His father, right? Jesus' father was king of, king of the Jews. So think about David, and we'll, get, we'll come back to David in a sec. But continue in verse 23. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. There are other places in the prophets that talk about a seamless garment as well. So we have lots of fulfillment of prophecy here. This is one of those places in Mel Gibson's movie that's not accurate. The man playing Jesus on the cross in the Passion was not naked. In fact, I've never seen an account or a rendition of the crucifixion in all the churches that I've been into for my entire life that actually had an accurate rendition of the crucifixion. I mean, can you imagine what Christians would have done if the Passion involved a naked man on a cross? What would Christians have done? This shows you the sentimentalism that dominates our, our culture. What would Christians have done if Mel Gibson had put a naked man up on the cross? 
It would have gotten R rating, obviously. And Christians would have protested. Well, I don't know, actually. Was it? Okay. Would Christians have gone to see it? This is R rated. And there's a reason for that. And in fact, if you remember back to the sign that Pilate put up on top of the cross, where he placed it, right by the gates of Jerusalem, a lot of people saw that sign and a lot of people saw Jesus Christ naked on the cross. Men, women, and children walked by him and saw him. And what did they see? They saw the mark of circumcision displayed to the world. Salvation is from the Jews. And then we have, of course, the whole idea of clothing here goes all the way back to the garden as well in Genesis chapter 3. God sacrificed, or at least it's implied in the text, that God sacrificed an animal in the garden and took the skins and clothed Adam and Eve. So what we have here really going on in the big story is a substitution. You have Adam and Eve who deserve to die in nakedness being clothed by God. And the nakedness and the death sentence that was given to them is transferred to Jesus Christ. And so he is crucified naked. The nakedness was taken upon himself so that his people might be clothed in righteousness. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. With the exception of John, Jesus was attended by women in his death. And Jesus actually fulfilled the law here. A lot of people don't realize this. This was actually part of the law that you were to honor your mother and your father. And so Jesus provides for the care of his mother by by transferring her responsibility from himself and gives it to his beloved disciple. But remember that David was the king of Israel, the king of the Jews, the father of Jesus Christ. If you remember back to the story of David, David was also attended by women in his death. Another one of those interesting connections to the history of Israel. You can read about that in 1 Kings 1 about Abishag, the Shunammite, who tended to David as he died of old age. So we have another connection here to the, the history of Israel. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed down his head and gave up his spirit. Parallel texts tell us that before he died, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I read an awful lot into that. I actually see that as the ultimate death sentence. As we've seen back in the garden, what was the death sentence upon Adam and Eve? They were to be separated from God's presence. They were kicked out of the garden, driven away from God's presence because of their sin. And when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What happens is when Adam's sin is laid on Christ, the Holy Father turns his face and looks away because he cannot view or be in the presence of sin. And you have this whole idea of the separation from, between Jesus and God the Father. The separation that Adam actually experienced. And so the Son of God is separated from God the Father for this time in order that the first Son of God, Adam, 
can be brought back into relationship. And we'll see how that works in the resurrection. That was the day of preparation. The next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Now, I've already, t- I've already talked about the pierced side of Christ and how that goes back to the story of the Garden of Eden. Remember, Adam was put into a deep sleep and then from his side, God makes Eve. So we have a parallel here as well because from the pierced side of Christ comes the, the flow of blood and water. And it is this blood and water through which God forms the new Eve for the new Adam. So we have a lot of things going on here. The whole concept of a, a deep sleep back in Genesis chapter 2, I believe is particularly prophetic of what the Messiah would undergo. It's prophetic of what takes place here with a church that is formed from the side of Christ. The blood and the water. The washing of regeneration and the sprinkling of the blood. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And here's where the garden story starts. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb, which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby... They laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, and in Mark it says, at dawn. Interesting way of looking at the resurrection. At dawn. While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in it at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside, he saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. It's interesting that what John has got here going on is that the disciples are running to the tomb, but they're actually running to the garden. And they're finding that the tomb is empty. Verse 10, Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying as she wept 
she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Might that be important? That's really important. We'll get to that. I want to finish out the text, but we're going to come back to what Mary saw in just a second. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus stand there, but she did not recognize it that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Two times, Mary is told or asked why she cries. The whole point of this is that there's no reason to cry. And I think there's actually a lot of, of issues here that relates all the way to Revelation 20 and 22, 21 and 22. It talks about there will be no crying, no pain, no sorrow in the new heavens and earth. But the whole point of this is there's no point for her to be crying. If she knew the truth, there would be no point in her crying. She thinks that Jesus is, is who? The gardener. Well, she's right, but wrong. Not the gardener she thinks about. Remember, remember back in Genesis 2, God is presented to us as the gardener. He plants the garden, makes the trees grow. Right? God the gardener. Jesus talks about that in John 15. I am the vine. My father is the gardener. Vine dresser. So she was right, but she missed it. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. So what does the woman do? She goes back and she tells the others. Do you see an order thing here going on from the garden? Is it any coincidence that Jesus appears first to a woman and then after he tells the woman that it's him, she goes and tells the men? Does that look familiar? Isn't that what happened in the garden? The woman took the, took the fruit and disobeyed God first. And then what happened? She gave it to the man. So we see here a parallel, an order, about what happened in the garden. Just as the woman sinned first, the woman sees and understands that redemption has come first. And then the disciples, she goes and tells the disciples, and then they... Verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. He appears next to the men. Verse 21, again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven the breath of life. What Adam lost in the garden through sin, the resurrected Lord breathes on them and they become living beings again. So all this stuff is very interesting. If you, if you read this, this text in terms of the garden, there's a lot of stuff here that comes alive. But I want to go back to that verse 12. What did, what did Mary see? But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look in the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Christians read right over this all the time. 
as if it's just, oh, angels appearing again. That's nice. I'll read it again. And saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Turn to Exodus 25. Remember, John's a priest from a priest's family. Exodus chapter 25, verse 17. God tells Moses, Make an atonement cover, also called mercy seat, of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim, that's plural, when it's I-M in Hebrew is plural, that's two or more. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherub are to face each other looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. There, there, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. The mercy seat was made out of solid gold. It is the most valuable piece as far as intrinsic value of furniture in the temple or in the tabernacle. Solid gold. And this was going to be the place where when they killed the bull and the goat for Day of Atonement, they would bring the blood into the most holy place and they would sprinkle the mercy seat with two angels on both sides. And the high priest would go through this entire ritual and come out in, with a symbolic raised hands of victory for the atonement of sin. Here you have in verse 12 of John chapter 20, the missing body is the mercy seat. The two angels on both sides at the head and the foot is a reflection of the cherubim, plural, of this atonement cover that sat on the ark. So when Mary looks and sees the missing body of Christ with two angels at the foot and at the head, she is seeing the Ark of the Covenant. Everything inside that Ark of the Covenant, the hidden manna, is in the missing body of Christ. Aaron's budding rod is in the missing body of Christ. The law, the the Ten Commandments on stone, is in the missing body of Christ. But as we've gone through this series, remember that everything in the law is Edenic. Everything comes from Eden. That's why I read Genesis chapter 3, 21 through 24 this morning. Because what did God do after he drove the man and the woman out of the garden? He placed cherubim, plural, with flaming swords to guard the way to the tree of life. And so what you see here with the woman who sees the angel at the head and at the foot of the missing body of Christ, the angels have no more swords. This is the entrance to Eden. That's the history that's playing here. The two angels. The flaming swords are gone and they ask Mary, Woman, why are you crying? His body is the mercy seat. His body is the atonement cover. His body is the place where God meets with His people. What should be our response? Nothing different than the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews 10, and I'll close with this passage. Hebrews chapter 10. I'll read verse 1 through 22. Give you a context here. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, 
Remember that Hebrews was written before 70 AD, before the temple was destroyed. For this reason, it can never be by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, think they have atonement, to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here am I, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties Again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time he awaits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sins. Here's the conclusion. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is His body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Amen. Let us draw near to God and live faithful lives in His garden, His most holy place. Let's pray.